Behold, even the moon, it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man that is a worm. If you were to read that verse in the New Living Translation, which uh, I like to use occasionally because of how uh, just clear it makes it, it says, in comparison, people are maggots. We mortals are mere worms. And uh, I want to say, you can be seated for just a moment. I want to have just a, a little bit of fun. And uh, obviously this church, we don't, in our worship, we've, we've been so uh, focused in our worship. So I'm not doing this to say this is how we are. But there are some people that, that this is their understanding of how the relationship between God and man is. I want you to take a, a, a peek at this video. It's all about me, really. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about how I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. No one else All this for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, You'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at memyselfandi.com. Call today because no one can praise you like you. That's not you, and I believe our worship here at the church uh, uh, shows that that's not the case. But sometimes we tend to have a pretty grand view of ourselves. You know, it, it's hard to imagine sometimes that we're not kings of our own kingdom. And uh, I've, I've read different things, and it is amazing. And, and I use Facebook and social media, so uh, I, I'm not, you know, completely throwing it under the bus. But all of that has made us a pretty narcissistic society. You know, it's all about me. Look what I've done. Look what I've had. We kind of like to puff up our chest and say, hey, I'm, I'm invincible. It's, it's all about me. But unfortunately, if we're not careful, that arrogant view can lead to our demise. Because if you remember in the book of Joshua, it, it ends, the book of Joshua, or, or rather the, uh, uh, the book of Judges begins and starts like this. It says, every man did what was right in their own eyes. When our world revolves around us, that's what happens. And I, I've used it a time or two, and I absolutely love the song, but I cannot stand the message. But Frank Sinatra, that song, sums it all up. I did it my way. I did it my way. One of the, the refrains in that song says this, For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. To say the thing he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. 
let the record show I took the blows and did it my way. That's one side of the spectrum of life. I don't have to kneel. I don't have to to acquiesce. I'm my own person. I'm my own man. I'm everything. The world revolves around me. That's one side of the spectrum. But 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 in juxtaposition with that, I I I am reminded of a song written around 1885. Isaac Watts wrote it and he wrote it like this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. And there, by faith, I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Isaac Watts penned that, and I, I, there's an essay by a, a lady by the name of Laurie, uh, Krentz, who wrote a short essay entitled Such a Worm as I and that's partly where I, I drew my title from and she wrote this I'm reminded that I've noticed that some hymns have been chains, changed to make them less harsh take for example the hymn at the cross when Isaac Watts penned those words in 1885 he wrote would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I and that's how she wrote, I learned the song and sung the song. I understood what it meant. However, if you were to get some of the newer hymnals, instead of saying worm, it would say, for such a sinner, such as I. And if you go even to some newer hymnals, they've taken the word sinner out, and they say, for such a one as I. Because who wants to be reminded that we're sinners? Who wants to be reminded that we are but a worm? I realize that it's less demeaning to say such a one as I. But when the writer Isaac Watts penned those words, he was very careful to choose the word that best represented the position that I have in the presence of God. You and I, we can't walk into the presence of God with our own righteousness. The Bible says our own righteousness is like filthy rags. It's the same righteousness that caused Adam and Eve to cover themselves with fig leaves, but... It wouldn't last. They wilted. They withered. They dried up. They died. And God's righteousness had to come. Mother Teresa wrote this. As a soul progresses towards God, there comes a time when the sense of one's own sin set against the majesty and purity and love of God becomes an unbearable burden. What does it mean when you put yourself next to the presence of God. Bildad, uh, Job's just discourse with Bildad, in case you're wondering, Bildad is the shortest man in the Bible because he was only a shoe height. And um, <laughs> Sorry, those are those dad jokes that come out, you know, and uh, some of you are so excited you get to use that tomorrow in your conversation. Anyway, the, the, the Job, the, the first chapter or two of Job, you find the loss that Job experienced. He lost his home. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his crops. He lost his, his livestock. And he went from being one of the most wealthiest men of that time to having absolutely nothing except his wife. And so you see that. And then uh, the next little bit of Job, you have Job's three friends that come and talk to him. And, uh 
they, 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 at first they try to comfort Job. They, you know, obviously Job is hurting, but when you begin to read it, and this is, you know, Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, we talked about the importance of the Bible and what it means to study. Let me give you a free Bible lesson. You can't just pick up Job and grab a verse out of Job and say this, you know, let, let, let's work on this. There's some things that Job's friends said that sound good. And you can, you can make some pretty good sermons on it. But the problem is, Job's friend, they, they, they sounded religious, they sounded righteous. But at the end of Job, you find that they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. They, they ceased trying to help Job. And they started saying, Job, it's all your fault that these things have happened. And they begin to say, Job, it's because you've sinned and you've done all of this. And, and, and the ending of Job proves something but uh, when, when Bildad begins to talk to Job in Job 25 it's a very short chapter it's what we read but, but he says you know Job God is powerful and dreadfully enforces uh, the peace in the heavens you can't count his heavenly army you, you, his light shines on all the earth there's no way that a mortal could be innocent before God no one that is born of a woman could be pure he's more glorious than the moon he shines brighter than the stars we're maggots we're just worms in his presence Job looks at him and you know there's some truth a little bit to that absolutely I can't compare to the glory of God and Job says and he's very sarcastic by the way when he says this oh how you've helped the powerless this is Job 26 how you've saved the weak how you've enlightened my stupidity what wise offerings you have said how have you gotten these wise, wise sayings he keeps going and then Job begins to explain what happens yes the world is naked in God's presence Yes, the place of destruction is uncovered. We know that God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Job is saying, I know God's power is unmatched. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds. The clouds don't burst with the weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with clouds. He created the horizons when he separated the waters. He set a boundary between day and night. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By the power, the sea grew calm. By his skill, he crushed the great uh, sea monster. His spirit made the heavens beautiful. His power pierced the gliding serpent. And these are all just the beginning of what he does. Merely a whisper of his power. Who then, who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? Job goes on in chapter 27 to say, I vow by the living God who has taken away my rights, by the Almighty who has embittered my soul, that as long as I live and I have breath from God, my lips will speak no evil, my tongue will speak no lies. I will never concede that you were right, Bildad. I will, I will defend my integrity till I die. I will maintain my innocence without wavering. See, Job... Even though, uh, again, just a, a, a footnote, the book of Job, Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Job, even though it, it happens kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically, Job and Abraham uh, very well could have lived during the same time. Job is a patriarch. Job is at the beginning of, of uh, recorded history in a sense. But Job understood the power of a conjunction. Others have preached parts of this, but a conjunction is a, 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 a phrase, a word that you can put in a sentence. And when you use that conjunction, it basically negates everything 
that was said before. 43 times in the, new, in the King James Version, this phrase, but God appears. And not all of them will apply to what we're going to talk about. Those two words uh, many times are some of the most powerful. They, they are implying a reversal of fortune, a reversal of change, if you will. For example, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 19. This is Joseph talking to his, his, his brothers that have come after Job has now become second in command there in Egypt. And Job said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the, for, for am I in the place, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you thought evil against me. You threw me in the pit. You sold me to the Ishmaelites. I, I've, I've been, you know, down and out. But God meant it for good. Psalms chapter 73 and verse 26 says, The flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The patriarchs, Acts chapter 7 and verse 9. And again, it's just reiterating Joseph's story. The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Acts chapter 13. And though they found no cause of death in him, they, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain, meaning Jesus. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. They laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him. From the dead. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. See Job understood this perhaps in a way that not everybody gets a chance to understand. Job understood the majesty of God. He was cognizant of the power and the glory and the, the incredible things of God. Read Job. How all the things that God does, what he creates, what he holds in place. He put Job, showed God in all of his grandeur. Yet Job realized that while the majesty of God allows us to be seen as mere worms. There's no way we could compare. There's no way we could come into contact with that God and not be changed. There's no way that we could ever uh, 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 you know, live up to what he has said. But Job recognized grace with that majesty, with that power, with that unlimitedness, limitless grandeur comes Amazing grace. Job didn't have the luxury of the New Testament. Job didn't even have the luxury of the writings of Moses there, uh, you know, that, that we have. But I will tell you that Job would not have been surprised when Paul began to pin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Job would have been nodding his head and shouting amen when, when he began to see Paul write that in Romans 3.23. But it also says that while all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 
Again, the New Living Translation writes it this way. For everyone have sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that you and I are righteous. And he did it through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. We're made right with God if you go on. We're made right with God when we believe that Jesus sacrificed his life and shed his blood. If Job could have, he'd have pinned the same words. He'd have said in Rome, like he could have easily pinned the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of God. Job understood. Yes, God is great. Yes, God is awesome. Yes, God is seemingly untouchable. Yes, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's by his voice that everything hangs in the balance. But in that same understanding, there is something else that God has done, and that is in the glory of God, he has looked down upon you and I when we didn't deserve anything. He's looked upon you and I when we have failed and come short of the glory of God. He looked at us in our sin. He looked at us in our dregs of society he looked at us and he said no matter how awesome I am I cannot I will not leave you helpless but God I mean it's like the song I once was lost in sin anybody ever been lost in sin those of you that didn't raise your hands, you just lied, so now you're in sin. There you go. I'll help you out. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And then a little light from heaven filled my soul. I once was, I should have been dead, but God. I should have been forgotten, but God. I should have been destined for hell, but God. I should have been lost, but God. I should have had all of these things on me, but God. It's amazing when you begin to look at that. It's amazing when you begin to see that. But God commended his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For such a worm as I. I didn't deserve it. You know, I, I, I see a, a mindset that, that has just infiltrated uh, uh our society and our life, and I'm sure you've run into it too. Nobody sins anymore. Anybody ever met that? Nobody sins anymore. I mean, it just blows my mind. I've, 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 I've talked to people that, that are as high as a kite. They smoke so much dope that I'm getting a contact high just being by them. They're, they're twitching and twerking and, you know, everything, and yet they still didn't sin. I've had drunk people quote the Bible better than I can quote the Bible. Nobody sins. It's just a mistake. It's just a little blip in the road. It's hard to preach nowadays, it seems, because I can, I can preach my guts out and read the Word of God and preach the Word of God and... You know, when, when, when uh, 
one of the, one of the, it's hard to read because it's in old English and we don't talk like that, but one of the greatest sermons that, that you'll ever be able to read. And I wish I could have heard it because I wish I could have been there, but they, they say Jonathan Edwards, he preached that sermon, Sinners uh, 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 in the Hands of an Angry God. They say that Jonathan Edwards, he, he, was, he was almost blind. And, and so he, he would write his sermon out and they said he would literally hold his sermon up and have to read it very close to his face. He was not a dynamic preacher. He, he wasn't going to wow you with his words per se. He wasn't going to wow you with his theatrics. But they said that it caused such a stir when he would begin to preach that, that there on sawdust floors and old brush arbors and tent revivals and outside on cow pastures that people would cower when he would preach. They would grab a hold of something until their knuckles turned white as they were beginning to be confronted with the fact that you don't matter one bit. You, you, you are just a worm. You are just a maggot in all of the grand things of God. But yet somewhere, God said I love you in spite of your deficiencies. I love you in spite of your sin. I love you in spite of your problems. I love you in spite of your brokenness. I love you in spite of your hurts. I love you in spite of the fact you've spit in my face. The book of Ezekiel carries a story that's wrapped in that and, and it, it, it's, I don't know if it's an allegory or if it actually happened, There's, it's kind of hard to tell but the story goes that there was a, that, that Ezekiel is walking out if you will and, and there was a baby in the middle of a field it, it, it's the same thing that you would read about in today where every once in a while and it just breaks my heart, I can't even wrap my head around it, they'll find a, a baby in a cardboard box in a dumpster find a baby in a just on the bathroom floor in a mall and people would give it away the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel that there was a baby cast in the field the Bible says it wasn't even salted or swaddled when a baby was born they would they would take salt and they would scrub that baby with salt salt has anesthetic properties and medicinal properties and they would clean that baby and they would rub it down with that salt and then they would wash it and they would wrap that baby up in swaddling clothes that's what a loving mother would do but here you find a baby that somebody had thrown out didn't even want the baby it's lying there in a field hadn't been cleaned still covered in ambiotic fluid and still covered with, with things and, 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 and here comes God if you will and he picked up that baby and he, he cleaned the baby up and he washed the baby and he raised that baby and he said, I love that baby. I'm going to do everything I can. He gave that, that young, it was a girl uh, in the story, that, that little girl had the best of clothes and the best of food and the best of home. The little girl grows up and plays the whore and leaves and runs and God begins to say, Israel, this is how you've been. You were a nobody, a nothing. No one cared for you, but I picked you up and I've saved you and I took care of you. And yet even then you still walk away in your sin and idolatry. And yet even then, I still love you. It's the story of Hosea and Gomer all over again. It's the story that takes place in page after page after page of the Bible. This understanding that it seems no matter what mankind does, we cannot outrun the grace of God. And even when we don't deserve it, there is a God that says, while I have every right to fold my hands and step back and say, fine, do it on your own. Live on your own. God says, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be there and I'm going to be waiting and I'm going to incline my hand to you and I'm going to incline my ear to you because even though you are a worm I love 
God commended his love toward us that when, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the depths that God has gone for you and I. 2003, it's been a few years ago, my wife and I were preaching in Hohenwald, Tennessee. We were doing a, a uh, uh, children's r- revival there. One night after church, because it was so funny because she kept, it, it, she, she was only four or five years old, but she walked up to me the first time and she said, hi, Jesus. Kind of threw me for a loop. And I said, uh, hi. Come to find out, she called all preachers Jesus. That's just how she did it, all preachers Jesus. But she was four or five years old, and, and her, her grandmother came, and she began to explain to me. She said, she said Brandon, she said, uh, Caitlin ha- has been abused by her, her biological father since the day she was born. A little bit ago, her mother finally divorced her biological father, and Caitlin's life changed for the better. She had a, 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 a father that loved her, a father that cared for her. That, that was not to last because in 2003, if you remember that far back, there was some major floods and storms that hit Tennessee and her, her stepfather that had adopted her was killed in the flood. But this little four-year-old, five-year-old girl, she looked at me and she said, my daddy, and she didn't mean her biological dad, she meant the, 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 her adopted dad. She looked at me and I, I've recorded it and I've, I've written it down and I think about it every time. She said, she said, Actually, she said Jesus, because that's what she called me. (laughs) She said, my daddy loved me because he gave me his name. That's no, that, that, that picture is the purest picture of what you can do. See, Caitlin had been adopted by someone that had looked past the past that she lived in. Her past was behind her. All of that pain and all of that hurt and all of that suffering and all of that abuse had been gone. But now there was a brand new name that represented love. He didn't have to adopt her. That wasn't his kid. He didn't have to have a stake in that at all. But he said, I love her so much that I'll give her my name the Bible says you and I once were of our father the devil we carried the name of the devil upon us but God what's amazing is 2003 I've had that story and I've, I've kept it but just two or three weeks ago when my wife and I were back in Tennessee I don't know what it is about Tennessee but we were doing those Tennessee crusades we get there on the first night and the very last young lady that received the gift of the Holy Ghost that night, she was 13 years old. She's been in a Pentecostal home as a foster child for over a year because she lived her entire life from, one, from, from born to 12 years old, mainly in a cage. Horribly abused. When, they, when that foster family there in the church received her, she could not speak. She had a third grade education. She could not hardly uh, uh, communicate. No one could touch her. She would recoil in anger. But I watched that night as I laid my hands on her. I watched as others began to pray. And she lifted up those hands and God filled her with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And she began to speak with other tongues. And God was saying, I don't care about your past. I don't care what you've gone through. The last night of the Tennessee Crusades, we were in Johnson City, Tennessee. I was doing the story of the prodigal son, and I had, had, had chosen some kids to help me 
and, and one of them, it, he wasn't playing the part of the prodigal, but one of them was just kind of helping me out. And this little dude, he couldn't have been but six or seven years old. And when I got to the, to the part about the, the, the father reaching to the prodigal son, this poor little kid, he just fell apart. I've never seen a kid cry and sob like that. What I didn't realize was that I had chosen a, a father and son to play the prodigal son. What I did not know is that this young boy that was helping me as well had just recently been adopted by that dad. He had been in foster care with that family for quite some time. And again, they begin to tell me that every day that he was in foster care with this family, he would go up to that, that father and he would say, can I have your name today? Will you let me have your name today? Can I have your name today? And very recently they made that legal and that young boy got his daddy's name. I'm telling you, there was something that you begin to realize. If that's as beautiful in the natural, it's got to be even more beautiful in the spiritual. That I once was lost in sin but God said even though you were of your father the devil even though you have a name of sin you have a name of shame you have a name of guilt I'm going to give you my name for the Bible says we are buried in the name of Jesus in baptism and when we go under the water and that preacher calls out Jesus name he said you are grafted in to the family of Christ and you bear his name From a worm to a prince. From a worm to righteousness. From a worm to glorious. The presence of God is so amazing. If I could speak to someone here today, I would remind you that you have a heavenly father that loves you that much. See, the, the children of Israel, when they came to the, 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 uh, they, they, the those spies came over from the wilderness and they began to spy out uh, the promised land the first time. They came back and they used this phrase, 10 of them, you know, the, the 10 spies that, that forgot what God could do. They came back and they said, we are in our own sight as grasshoppers. I'm convinced that they really weren't as small as they thought they were. But when it comes to me, I really am a worm. This isn't just me acquiescing and kind of condescending. No, when I looked at heaven, when I looked at God, I realized I didn't deserve anything. I realized that 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 I was just a and and, and Bill Dad said a lot of things that weren't right, but Bill Dad at least got this right. I am just a mere maggot in the presence of God. I know my sins caused Jesus to die on the cross. I know he died because of my uh, faults and my failures. And that could have been where it ended. He took my punishment, and, but it's so much more than that. He died so that I might find grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. So begins one of the most incredible hymns of all times. Written by John Newton, born in London, 1725. He lived his entire life on the sea. His father was a merchant captain. Six voyages he made with his dad until the elder retired. 
as was very common in that day. John was basically kidnapped when he was 11, and, or, or, or rather when he was 17, and kind of indentured to a man of war ship, the HMS Harwick. He didn't like it, and he escaped, and he was recaptured and flogged, demoted. And finally he asked, he said, can I go over to this slave ship that plied the coast of Sierra Leone? He was the servant of a slave trader, horribly abused. But in 1748, John Newton was rescued by a sea captain that had known John's father. And finally, ultimately, he became the captain of his own ship, a slave ship. His mother had given him religious instruction as a child, but his mother had died really early in his childhood, and so, truth be known, he had given up any religious convictions. But one night, he was steering a ship, and that great storm came, and he, he, he said in his journal, he experienced his great deliverance. John Newton's journal records these words. He said, when all seemed lost and the ship would sink, I cried, Lord, have mercy upon us. Think about that. A slave trader that deals in the cargo of human flesh, one of the lowest of lows, one that's probably never prayed a day in his life after being six years old or so. For all practical purposes, an agnostic and maybe even lending, leaning towards atheists in the middle of a storm, cried to God that he has spit at and, 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 and flaunted his sin and said, God, have mercy on me. For scarcely for a righteous man would one dare to die. Maybe for a good man one might die. If somebody treated you the way John Newton treated the righteousness of God, you wouldn't give them the time of day. You'd have written them off. I'm not going to help you. I'm going to let that. In fact, I created that storm just so you'd sink. That's not how God works. Because God brought him through that storm. And for the rest of his life on May 10th, which is actually um, very close, just to five days or, or, or four days, we'd be celebrating 270 years. Every day he observed the anniversary of that day as the day of his conversion. A day of humiliation where he subjected his will to a higher power. When he began to pen words like, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Later on in his life, he got married. Later on in his life, he began to go to church. Later on in his life, he got a minister's license and a minister's education. Later on in life, he pastored his own church. And it was there that he began to pin songs for the weekly prayer meetings that they would have, collaborating with William Cowper there in Olney, England. And in 1779, they published their first book of songs. Songs like how sweet the name of Jesus sounds and glorious things of thee are spoken and amazing grace. You know most of them. But in the original hymn, there was one uh, stanza that we don't ever sing. He says, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess behind the veil a life 
of joy and peace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's David penning the psalm in Psalms chapter 8. When he began to say, when I look at heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What is the son of man that thou carest for him? And David said, I look at my life and I realize I'm just a worm. But oh, the grace, oh, the grace of God that reaches down and begins to grab hold of us. David also said in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 16 and this is a verse that that, uh, Newton always connected to the song he wrote Amazing Grace David said who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far and I believe as you and I stand today I believe that we would say the same thing Lord who am I Who am I that you would bring me this far when I didn't deserve one bit of it? I'm here to tell someone that while it is absolutely right for you and I to look at ourselves and say we're but a mere worm, I also want you to see what God sees. God says if you'll repent, if you'll humble yourselves and say that you need me, then I will fill you with my spirit. And I will let you stand with your head lifted, standing not in the righteousness that you've given yourself, but in righteousness that I have imputed upon you. And you can say this, not much more then, I'm being justified by his blood, and I am saved from wrath through him. I wonder if somebody would just begin to lift your hands. And if you'll just begin to let God begin to speak with you. I don't know at what part of this story you find yourself in. Maybe you're still the worm. Maybe you're still the lost. Maybe you're still the broken and the abused. But there's a God right now that's extending a hand of mercy to you, a hand of grace to you. Would you accept it? Would you receive it? Sing that again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. I believe we ought to come from the back to the front from either side. And if all you need to do is just lift your hands and say thank you for saving me, then that's what you need to do. But I believe there's those here that need to say, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Maybe you can find somebody to pray with and pray for. Maybe you can find someone that you can put an arm around and say, I want to pray with you right now in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, would you begin to minister right now? Would you let the power of God begin to speak?